0: I am your constant companion. I'm your greatest helper or heaviest burden. I will push you onward or drag you down to failure. I am completely at your command. Half of the things you do, you might as well turn over to me, and I will do them quickly and correctly. I am easily managed, but you must be firm with me. Show me exactly how you want something done, and after a few lessons, I'll do it automatically. I am the servant of great people, and alas, of all failures as well. Those who are great, I have made great. And those who are failures, I have made failures. I am not a machine, though I work with the precision of a machine, plus the intelligence of a person. You may run me for profit or run me for ruin. It makes no difference to me. Take me, train me, be firm with me, and I will place your world at your feet. Be easy with me, and I will destroy you. Who am I?
1: Welcome, everybody, to the Magical Writing Podcast. We've opened with a little teaser riddle for you today. Um, We're going to be moving on into another hermetic principle, a principle of mentalism. Uh, Magicians are fond of saying that the all is mind, the universe is mental, so what's the answer, my dear co-host Mendez, Mendes, uh, to the poem and how does it tie in to the concept of mentalism and successful writing?
0: Ah, uh, so who am I? Habit. Habit. <laughs> and to, to quote one of my all-time favorite authors, and I think we talked about The Greatest Salesman in the World before, um, written by Og Mandino, um, he did change my life and he had this to say in truth, the only difference between those who have failed and those who have succeeded lies in the difference in their habits. Good habits are the key to all successes and bad habits are the unlocked door to failure. And so his advice <laughs> in his book is form good habits and become their slave. Because when you say that the, the, all is mine, it really does. Habits are formed in the mind. And, you know, just like we laid the framework for polarity, I think it's really important that we lay some kind of biological framework this time. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about knowing thyself today, it means understanding some neuroscience, which could seem (laughs) a little scary, but we'll do it on the most basic level of like neuroscience. You don't need to reconnect, you know, and cut tissue. It's not brain surgery (laughs) technically. Um, But I, I guess I want people to become more aware of this beautiful, amazing tool that we were given. I mean, it is the greatest evolutionary tool of all time, but if you don't know how to use a tool, it's completely pointless and worthless to you. Um, And it's even worse your brain because your brain is a tool that is going to work no matter what. And so you've got to understand how to use it. Um, And one of the things we're going to talk about today in tandem with habits is is a concept of paradigms because our paradigms are something that's in our mind and we are blinded to them for the most part um but they allow us to succeed and without us really knowing it we might reinforce negative habits and then our subconscious mind starts to you know sabotage us without us even knowing it and i know in this episode we are going to sound probably or in the next couple episodes especially the next one <laughs> yeah yeah going to sound like some self help gurus for sure like oh positivity and this and that um there is a very fine line i guess i would say between what's positive and what becomes toxic And every person needs to figure that out for themselves as they're listening to this. Man, when it comes to paradigms and and mindsets, I think the self-help community is spot on. And that might bother some people, but a good warning for this episode is if you do the things we're gonna talk about, you are going to become uncomfortable. You are going to be bothered because changing and evolving is painful. Um, But you will be so much happier if we do it. So habits, that's that's the that and paradigm. Awesome.
1: Yeah, they're a powerful thing, uh, as the the poem kind of illustrates. And I really um, like what you were saying about, you know, you're going to become uncomfortable because (laughs) <laughs> when you actually start to change your life it can be really scary and you introduce these new things that change things and I think a lot of us often end up discovering we're actually terrified of success but we'll, we'll maybe come back to that later on um to keep it uh uh, on a kind of grounded level as you were saying the word paradigm is one of those words that is thrown around quite a lot and is used confusingly in different contexts so when you say paradigms i'm thinking of this as like an established pattern of thinking or system that we use uh would you would you agree with that
0: uh yeah absolutely it is and i think um since everyone knows, I used to be in the classroom a lot. So I, I used to get a lot of books for kids. And um, anyway, I think it was the seven effective habits or highly effective habits. Habits of teens. highly know-
1: effective people. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And he did one for teens and it was so cool. And so Stephen Covey, um, if that's how you pronounce his last name, I think he said it the simplest. And a paradigm is basically almost like a lens or glasses that you put on in which you view and see the world. It's like he said, the set of beliefs, um, theories you have, assumptions, ideas that create a framework of how you operate every single day in the world. And we all view the world differently. And that becomes our paradigm. And then I guess when you start to take a multitude of these paradigms, they really create your habits because the way you view the world is how you're going to act. If you believe something very strongly, you're going to act a certain way, whereas someone who doesn't believe that won't act the way you do. And so these paradigms are your guiding force in life. They're how you see the world, they're how you operate. But the biggest kicker is they didn't originate with you. (laughs) (laughs) They're not really yours at all, right? They're an accumulated inheritance of all these other people's habits, opinions, and belief systems. Um, And I think it's also important to say you don't have just one paradigm. People say, oh, I've got, you know, this is my paradigm for the world. But you have one for like, let's say, education. You have one for social media. We talk a lot about on this channel, right? The way you view social Mm -hmm. media, how it's a tool or how it's bad or good. Relationships. Uh, The way you think a boyfriend or girlfriend should operate, you know, within a relationship. The way you think friendships should operate. These are all paradigms. And if someone doesn't live up to your paradigm, you tend to have a problem with it, right? You're like, oh, what's wrong with this guy? He's totally (laughs) weird. He's not weird, he's just different. He just had a different paradigm than you. But these paradigms, these glasses we put on are probably the reason why I'd say 90% of people don't reach their goals in life. Um, or, or they're, they're having a lot of struggles. So I guess a couple more uh, in examples of paradigms, because I think it's better to, to, to show some examples. Yes. I used to work at, and I do hate labels, but you, you need them, right? We need to have some kind of label. So yeah. I worked at a non-traditional school or an at-risk school. Um, so I had a lot of students who they wanted to learn, um, but school just hadn't been for them. And they couldn't even fathom going to college, but yet a lot of these kids maybe had grown up with this paradigm that in order to be successful, they had to go to college. And this was causing them a lot of grief because I found out, look, college worked for me. It was good. The the field I wanted to go into, it needed it. And I'm very happy that I did it, but I did learn from teaching college is not for everyone. And if you think that's your only path to success that's a crappy paradigm to have had inserted in your head because it doesn't fit with you as a person, and forcing yourself to do that is just going to be really, really bad. You know, you're going to have a lot of—it's going to hurt you. I think in the long run. Um, some other ones that were a big deal in the classroom, I used to ask kids, "Hey." what do you think is a breakfast food and um i'm gonna put this (laughs) i'm gonna put this meme up and we gotta have a whole episode on memes because those are great (laughs) oh my god yeah i don't think people understand where the word meme is coming from and what it really is i feel like it's like an occult slip-in word
1: there was um there's a game called Metal Gear Solid Sons of Liberty, which Mm -hmm. is so much more than a game. It was made by Hideo Kojima, who's like an incredible writer. And he talks about memes in it. But this was way before this was like really early 90s, way before like memes on the Internet was a thing. And he's talking about the actual meaning of memes and it's like really weird now seeing it in that context when you go back to it Mm because your your brain splices in the like modern definition um but yeah he was using it there in in the in the true sense so uh, that's
0: so awesome Yeah, yeah let's do a whole thing on memes that would be great i love them and the way they transmit these ideas uh, so this particular meme that we have up on screen, if you're listening to the podcast, um, it's three panels. It's basically a comic strip. And in the first one is this kid and he's sitting at the table and he's got a bowl of ice cream in front of him. He's about to take a scoop. Second frame and says, no, Timmy, stop, basically. And he's like, well, huh? and he looks over and the final frame is his father. And his father is sitting at the table with him now. And he says, you can't eat dessert for breakfast. And yet he is sitting there with a stack of pancakes with butter and syrup <laughs> dripping off him. A cinnamon roll, and what looks like to me is is in a coffee cup, but it has the dollop of whipped cream, and who knows, maybe it's one of those sugar latte whatever's. And it's like, oh my gosh, how hypocritical, right? Like, mm. if you grew up though thinking this was food, and my students said that, oh yeah, waffles, pancakes, this and that, I go, oh guys, yeah, that's cool. I guess that's a breakfast food, but how did you come up with that? And yeah, you can eat like that now, but as you start to get older and your metabolism is slowing down, you might have a huge set of health problems, but you didn't know any better because you literally grew up thinking this was food, mm-hmm. you know, and again, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but hey, I found for me, that is not the way to eat breakfast. In fact, for me, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't eat breakfast. I was heavier as a kid. I had a more, much more health problems. And for me, eating breakfast was the worst thing ever. And people are going to think I'm crazy, but I love doing fasting. My body mm. functions so much better. Um, it's nine 30 this morning. Uh, in my time, I got up at five o'clock this morning. I haven't eaten and I'm probably not going to eat for quite a while still, but I am got so much more energy. Yeah. Um, another one that they used to bring up for me is milk. They used to tell me how they would have milk and cereal. Oh, I had such a good breakfast. I'm like, milk don't even get me started on the milk paradigm oh my god yeah is is, is it weird to
1: you i I, I quit dairy recently i mean i haven't it's not like a cold turkey like if somebody puts milk in my tea i'm not gonna have a go at them like it's just it's not gonna kill me either but i stopped having milk and cereals stopped having milk in my tea stopped having any cheese and all, like loads of problems, health problems instantly cleared up. Like I thought I had hay fever, gone. Uh, you know, like yeah. swelling, gone. Um, you bloating in the gut, gone. Like so many things. I was like, my whole life I've been poisoning myself
0: yeah. every day
1: without realizing it because that's just what you're supposed to do uh it's um a really strange thing and i guess it's not for everyone i guess if you're a nordic uh Iceland- right, right, right. icelander like you your body is uh evolved to be able to handle copious amounts of cheese and milk and stuff or you're living in southern france like um where they've got the healthiest hearts in the world mm-hmm. even though they're eating cheese all day like that's just how they're built i guess but
0: but not that, well that's for super important yeah, like ev- evolutionarily, there there is going to be societies that are slightly different mm-hmm. and their bodies have adapted to it. So this is, is really important just because the I don't know if you have these in the UK, but the got milk ads and it was does the body good. <laughs> yeah. It was so popular here. We were all indoctrinated with it. But yeah, most of the research I've done, if you're in our Western society, um, it, it was we are. If you could tolerate the milk, you are the weird one, actually, mm-hmm. because. You had this, you, you evolved to have that ability. And most of us were lactose intolerant, but we may do. And we don't realize exactly how you said, how negative these things are. That's just hell. Now let's put this into writing. You could be an excellent writer, right? And you think you're getting through and things are going relatively well. But if you have one of these paradigms where you're looking through it and you're an amazing writer, no one might read your work. You might be hurting yourself and not even knowing it. So it's really time now um, to start making a list. And of course, you guys don't need to talk about your your foods and your lists and stuff like that, unless (laughs) you find that it's slowing you so down that you don't feel healthy enough to keep writing, then then it is something. Um, But for this one, I think what we want to focus on are things like um, how you feel about success, deep, deep Mm. down, how you feel about money, uh, people have some weird paradigms about money and they have a lot of cognitive dissonance about it which we're going to talk about later they they say they want money but at the same time they also act like money is the root of all evil yeah that's not going that's going to mess with your subconscious mind your self worth as a person um when you want to price your books what like what are you worth it, that's a really hard thing to start talking about your outgoingness all these things are going to determine your success as an author and um, again, you might have negative paradigms or you might have positive ones, mm-hmm. but we have to base them off the results you're getting. And, and yeah. that's that's really the thing. So I don't want to say one thing is good, one thing is bad. Yeah. If you're a Nordic guy, you're eating all this stuff or a Nordic lady, <laughs> you're okay. Yeah. If you're one of us, you're having a massive health problem. So it's got to be based on the results you're getting. If you've got the result you want, cool, keep going for it. If you don't, now it's time to change it up.
1: Yeah. That's really amazing. It's that uh, classic principle, isn't it, of limiting self-beliefs. And I, I had a coaching session with, uh, with a motivational mapper, actually. And um, we just got to this point where I just suddenly realized, like, the reason I couldn't make any money was because I had a massive chip on my shoulder against people who made. So there was, unconsciously, whatever I was saying consciously, you know, I associate people with money as bad. So I didn't want to become one of those people. And so therefore actively sabotaged all my attempts to uh, actually get it. And and there's um, a quote I um, really like by uh, Henry Ford, which is that if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. Uh, and if ultimately you believe that uh, and that that applies to, uh, you know, very obvious level of like if you believe you have the capability to be successful but it's also about like those deeper beliefs as you were saying about you know if you believe that money is wrong then you will avoid it uh whether consciously or no um so how how do we uh, erase is maybe a strong word but how do we kind of heal these faulty paradigms and replace them with new ones Um, yeah
0: um, before I go into that, there's something that I love that you said that just hit home. You were sabotaging yourself and yeah. you, did, you uh, it was unconscious. You didn't know it because if you yeah. ask a person, hey, are, do, you care, do you love yourself? The majority of people are going to say yes or they'll say, oh, yeah, I would like to have more money. And we're not talking about that today. We're talking about what you said, these unconscious beliefs yeah. that really make us up. And when we get to that part, we're going to, I'll put something up on the screen. It's, it's that classic iceberg though. What we say consciously is like this 2% tip, right? But what we really are and believe at our core is this like 98%. I mean, I'm, I'm probably going a little too high. Maybe it's 90, 10, but yeah, it's built in there. So how do we erase something or, or as you say, heal it? Fix it, right? But um I, I do want to scare everybody right away because I love doing it because it, it, you know, it's always worked <laughs> with the kids. You are a horrible we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna brainwash you. We're going to brainwash you. Yeah. Um, because your body is your mind is broken. Technically, we're gonna call it that. And we're gonna heal it by brainwashing you. But don't let that scare you, because that usually does scare people. I have always been fond of saying, and I'm sure most people won't love this, but everybody is brainwashed somehow. just like everybody's in a cult. And that's why we call it culture. You know, (laughs) when you're, you're in the culture, you don't question it though, right? Mm -hmm. We only say you're in a cult if it's overtly hurting someone on the surface. But if you look at our society, our current society, I would say that many of the paradigms we collectively agree upon, um, they are damaging people profoundly. And it's just very upsetting. And we don't change them because when the paradigm is the mainstream or the majority of people view it, like we said, we become the odd people out. And it it, it sucks because we feel like we're wrong, even though we're getting the things we want. Nobody seems to agree with us and they keep complaining and we're like, oh, just do this. And they think that we're the nuts. Um, There's a beautiful quote and I don't I don't remember the person who said it, but I'm sure we can look it up. And it is, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society.
1: <laughs> right? I've heard that quote before. I can't remember who it is. But yeah, that's a, a profound. It's like the, um, is it Thoreau who said that like the only place for a moral man in an immoral society is in prison? Um, <laughs> like, yeah, that's might really- have been.
0: I've heard that one. I don't know who said it, but. And it does. It makes us sound like the bad people. And that's why you're going to feel very uncomfortable by doing this, these tactics. If you really want to launch in, and when I say you, I'm talking about the authors out there, whoever's listening, any aspect of your life, this is why it becomes uncomfortable. You suddenly have the focus of everyone on you. Um, And again, food is just such a low hanging fruit, Uh, you know, pardon the the easy part there, but it, it really is that here, at least in America now, I think because we've infiltrated, you know, for better or for worse, almost every country with our McDonald's and our fast foods and our supposedly way of living. Um, we have, I think more people are dying of food related illnesses right now than are starving, you know, mm. and that's, it's kind of gross. It's kind of insane. And I, I knew a person and I'll throw this out there. I don't want to get too much on a tangent, but the guy had a lot of health problems. He was dealing with diabetes, but it was, type two is the adult onset. He, he basically had given it to himself mm-hmm. and he was so happy that he was getting medicine, not just because the medicine would control his levels and help, you know, keep him mm. uh, even and allow him to change his lifestyle. He was happy because he could just take the medicine and then eat a piece of cake. Like the guy would rather eat cake, you know, and put his life and take this medicine than to quit cake. And I think that really does say something. Like you yeah. said, I'm sure milk and tea and, You know, when we get into the emotional part of the brain, there's good feelings around food. As a kid, Mm. my mom, like if something was good, she was like, oh, let's go out and celebrate you accomplished something. So I link all these really nice things now with food. But that made it really hard because now it's like, well, what do you do in social situations? Oh, I want to take you out. I'm going to take you on a date. Let's go to a dinner. Yeah. Well, that's what you do. And so food becomes linked with all these really positive emotions and social settings. And it becomes hard to separate them. But that's what this is all about, right? It's absolutely.
1: And I remember um, uh, my in-laws are all phenomenal uh, bakers and, and, and cooks and um, make truly delicious, wonderful, wholesome food. And, but I, in my family, we don't eat a lot of sweet things. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a special treat. And um, my mother-in-law is an amazing baker. She makes these incredible cakes. And I remember when I first kind of arrived, it's like, oh, would you like some cake? And it's like, well, no, like I I wouldn't. (laughs) And I realized my terrible mistake because in rejecting the cake, I was rejecting her as a person because that's the the ingrained paradigm uh, was that the cake is love um and slowly but surely like uh we we got over i i got over my preciousness about my body as a temple and realized that one piece of cake won't kill me Uh, and but she also recognized that you know sometimes he doesn't want the cake and that's not because he hates me (laughs) it's just because he doesn't want the cake and you know he looks after himself and or tries to and so we, we were able to meet in the middle ground and, and that was really wonderful. But I think for a lot of people, these things are, and as you say, food just seems to be an easy example, but it yeah. happens in, in,
0: in other fields as well. Right. Oh, it does. Um, but you, that is a beautiful example. And the fact, I mean, obviously because it's your, your mother-in-law, you are going to work to make that, yeah. you know, a success, but how often do we just, we discount other people right away and that's our split second decision of them, you know, and, yeah. and now do that to start in the book community. You don't probably know all these people. You're having little interactions on social media. You're having little interactions via email. You're so fortunate that you get to see our faces, or at least hear the in tone of our voice, you can kind of understand what's being said, but you can't do that in the medium of text. And so those Mm -hmm. split second judgments get made. And, you know, it's just difficult. It's really hard. And so that's to get back to your original question. We're going to wash your brain of all the faulty input <laughs> or the faulty paradigms and input quote unquote good ones, which as you know, from polarity, we just said, it's completely subjective. Just again, if you don't have the results you want, that's what I always measure on. That's the metric I was taught and I like it. Um, like, like like, you said, as long as your body's feeling good and it's functioning that piece of cake here and there with mom is not going to be an issue. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. When it starts to become an issue, you just let her know and it's over. So if, if you're not getting the results you want, if there's an issue there, that's when they're bad. And that's when we kind of need to change it.
1: In general, I think as a society, we are there like both the UK and America. And I think increasingly most of the world is being kind of corrupted by this. <laughs> uh, it is a very um, process focused uh metrics rather than outcome focused metrics and i think we talked a little bit about you know being on the outside and uh not following the societal paradigms and i think that that is a reason that society can attack like the immune blood cell response uh wow this person is operating from a completely different set of metrics of success and therefore i don't understand that um but you you mentioned at the start that you were going to go into a little bit of neuroscience, so I guess that must connect with the brainwashing. So, uh, yeah, uh, why don't you um, give us an overview of there? Are you using the triune model of the brain? Or?
0: Yeah, that's that's I think that's uh, such an an easy model, and and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll put it up on the screen now. Um, and if not, if you don't have, if you're on the podcast, just go ahead and just Google it. Um, I know that people will say, oh, there's there might be like flaws here, this and that. It's very, it's very oversimplified. Mm. And so, but I think for this, we need to understand, or I guess, okay, for me, here's a, here's a nice line for me that changed it and why I think the science aspect is so important. When I listened to positivity gurus, it did sound like a bunch of nonsense to me. I'm like, <laughs> this is just the hell I'm lying to myself yeah, yeah, is what it felt like. But if you understand how the brain works and you, you start to understand the tool, it's like, oh crap. No, no, no. This is actually true. This will work. So let's do a brief overview and we can get more and more into it. Um, And then, you know, just ask any of the questions, viewers and stuff like that. And we can do more and more on it. But I guess the briefest this triune model says uh, there are three parts of the brain essentially, right? And so they're going to be your reptilian brain. There's going to be the limbic system, which is the newer term. I always like saying mammalian It just, Mm. it rolls with the reptilian and, and it, means a lot to me. Like it invokes yeah. images. Um, and the last one is going to be either, you can call it the neocortex, you can call it the frontal lobes. That's the one that other species have, but it's most developed in human beings. Mm. So these are the three and you, we really have to understand these three. So the reptilian, the first part is that little one on the screen that I have in green. And it does, it connects with the brainstem. It's the oldest part of the brain, and it's essentially the same in in all reptiles. These are your basic functions for survival. They house all of these things. It's concerned on, you know, breathing and reflective behaviors and muscle control and heartbeat and reproduction and feeding and digestion. You don't ever think about these things, but this is the part of your brain that is doing them, and it cares only about survival. It doesn't really care about anything else. And just easy ways of thinking about it is when you look at reptiles, they're not like nurturing and loving of their young, right? You don't <laughs> see like snakes and all these things doing all the, they just, how do I live? It's concerned about dominance and territory and mm. I need to survive. That's it. And that's our deep, most deeply ingrained part of our brains. And it goes right to the brainstem. And I think it was last week, I was actually talking about how I had done cooking and stuff like that. And um, when I'm doing a whole lot of cooking and I forget if I took a pan out of the oven and all of a sudden I go to grab a handle and I just yank it away automatically yeah. because I've cooked a big meal before by myself and accidentally touched something and had a heck of a burn. And so without me even thinking about it, my hand was gone. Turned out this pan was not hot at all, but I was like, <laughs> Yeah. It wanted to keep me alive. And it just automatically said, don't do that. I couldn't even think about it. So that's the first part of the brain, the next part of the brain. And they don't just sit on top of each other. Like I said, they're wrapped in and there's, you know, neural pathways that innervate through all this, but your limbic or your mammalian brain, this is the second part that developed. And it provides us with kind of like feelings of what's true and important to us, but it doesn't articulate these feelings to the next part of our brain, which is our conscious brain. Um, It records memories of times and experience for us that it produced a good, agreeable experience, but also a very disagreeable experience. Um, And it's responsible for basically emotion, what we call emotions. Mm. And uh, by linking emotions with behavior, the mammalian brain adds uh, another layer of control to the automatic response of the reptilian brain. Uh, trying to think of some other ways, value judgments that we don't yes. even think about. Well, we were saying the cake thing. There was a feeling that you injured your mother-in-law by re- revoking or, you know, rejecting the cake. That triggered probably something in her brain was like, wait, this is love. As you said, mm. love is an emotion. You said no, because you were operating from a different paradigm. And her first thing was, oh, you, you've injured me. It's almost like that was linked to her survival. Yeah. And if you didn't know each other, she could be like, oh, I just don't want to talk to that person because, I mean, that's an extreme example, not to like someone over cake. But <laughs> I'm assuming our audience is relatively intelligent. I know you guys are. And so extrapolate that to something else. And then these two parts together, we automatically or we don't automatically, but we we call it the subconscious mind mm. because that then gets buried. We don't think about it because this next one develops. So even if your sister or your mother-in-law didn't say, wow, Joseph hates me deep down, she was like, oh, that was really strange. She's now on guard to like, I've got to understand this man that my yeah. daughter is marrying more. So let me let me understand him because I, I don't understand him right now. Uh, which leads into the third part which is our neocortex um the outer part of the brain and it makes all those wonderful things that make us uniquely human right (laughs) logic speech and writing um it it, it is reasoning that's what it is Mm. it's the ability to to have these executive decision-making behaviors to see into the future that's a really important point the reptilian and the mammalian brain they do not care about time. Yeah. Um, and I know we're going to go into this more later, but they don't understand time. They don't um, understand the future. Everything is now, everything yeah. is in the moment. And that's why you don't see animals behaving the way humans behave, because they're mostly living in the moment, which is extremely difficult for us to do. Yeah. A couple important components about the neocortex, so the frontal lobes. They don't start developing until about the age of three and they're not fully developed in most people until those ages of about, eh, you know, 20 to 25 here in the States. I mean, it's a long time since I've been 25, but (laughs) you know, we used to not um, give breaks on car insurance, like driving until you got to the age of 25. In fact, when I was younger, you couldn't rent a car until even 23 because they knew your, your logical decision-making wasn't really there, you know? Um, and, and, and they, that's basically what they did. They just knew that you weren't going to have that rational part. And so just a, I guess a a quick one. And again, ask questions if anyone has them, but the late development of this neocortex is one of the reasons that we have so many negative and counterproductive paradigms in our subconscious mind. So our conscious is that little two to 10% at the top. And then the subconscious is that reptilian and mammalian, the big part of us. Um, When the emotional parts of our brain were developing in those early lives, we didn't have the neocortex there to say, hey, this is not a good paradigm to have. (laughs) don't have this one. It wasn't there. All we did was absorb. We absorbed, absorbed, absorbed by the people we were watching. Parents, caregivers, teachers, all of these things started to tell us how you act, how you think, what you should do. And then Then when you start getting older, you don't question it. Your subconscious mind is there. It's set. You kind of become the person you're going to be around the age of 10 or so, really. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is unless you have some kind of traumatic experience um, that really like really quickly rechanges the brain and rewires it, you Mm -hmm. kind of are that person. And uh, an overview of how all this might work together. It's very much like a computer. Um, in a split second, this stuff happens. When you're confronted in a situation, your computer mind, it, it, it searches this stockpile of experiences that you had when you were a kid for information on how to react. And it goes all the way back to the first time that it can remember you experiencing this, even if you don't remember it. Yeah. It remembers it because it, it really is the program running behind and we need to have our our space cleared up, you know? And so this could, I'm going to use some examples that I use in the classroom. So uh, some of them are, you know, maybe not politically correct, but that's okay. Uh, this one, I, I like to pick on boys and girls equally in the classroom and stuff. And I and just, I always get a reaction. So the first one I'll do is, is a kid who wants to go to the park, right? We're going to pretend this is a, a little girl, really wants to go to the park. Maybe she's only three, is begging for it. Or this could be a toy at a store or anything that you wanted your parents or caregiver to take you to do. And at that moment, the adult in the situation couldn't possibly do it. And they're like, you know what? This is a weekday. I have work to do. On Saturday, I'm going to take you. Do you think a three-year-old knows what Saturday is? <laughs> it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. No. <laughs> and we just made that word up. And why the hell is like Monday through Friday, the days we've got to work and Saturday and Sunday are like, the weekend. It's just, it's a paradigm, but whatever. So this kid has a couple options. They want it now for whatever the reason they have a a positive feeling of the park. It makes them feel whatever. Right. Um, and so they want to go, they can cry. They can do a lot of things. They can do the puppy dog eyes. And Mm -hmm. if that works and the parent eventually gives in and gets them that toy or that thing, They have now made a connection in their subconscious brain. Hmm. If I want something, I have to cry or give puppy dog eyes. Now let's rewind or fast forward to this young lady is now 20, 23, 25. And this paradigm is in there. So through no real fault of their own, if they want something in a relationship or later in life, they probably socially know they cannot cry, but they have adapted their model to say, I can give puppy dog eyes. I can use (laughs) something to manipulate oh if you love me and, and guys do this crap too so i'm not just singling out girls but guys just loved in the classroom like yes they do that you know because it's 17 year old dudes and they just thought that was very funny because those are the relationships they were in they do she gave me the puppy dog eyes, and i said did it work and they go yeah it did i go well i don't know who the that <laughs> is then right like because you then accepted it but that's one of them now to pick on guys a little bit here's another a subconscious one that happens um If you uh, came from a home where let's say there was a lot of fighting, maybe the parents Mm. were fighting, whatever it was, you have to survive. And that's a scary situation to be in. So maybe you have a video game console and your thing as a young kid was, you know what, mom and dad are fighting. I know what's safe survival, right? The the subconscious mind, you go upstairs, you turn on your video games and you zone out. You don't even hear them anymore. You're playing a game and that game becomes your safety zone. You love it. You have an emotional, happy attachment to it. And later on in life, you know, when a problem happens rather than even though consciously, you know, you're like, man, i got to deal with this. It's just Mm -hmm. overwhelming. And the hits come all the time. Every day there's something else, right? And so you just want to go up to your room and play some video games and you do it. And we start to rationalize it to ourselves like, oh, it's okay. It's just a little bit. But what if you're hurting yourself because you're playing this game, you're zoning out because it's your safety net. But meanwhile, other aspects of your life are falling apart. And so that's really, I think, where these things all come together and then affect you later. And those are really easy ones. And if you don't want to evaluate yourself too low, I'll I'll give one more before we move on, that it's really your autopilot. I don't know how much you guys drive in the UK, but Mm -hmm. here um, in the States, I have to drive a lot, especially I live in the Southwest. And so we're not as close as, you know, like New York, like you don't Mm -hmm. really need a car if you're in the city, you just operate in a small localized area, which sounds like might be some of the places in the UK, but I have to drive all over. So for five years, I'm going to the same school every single day. So after a while, my subconscious mind just goes, oh, I know where you're going and this will sound terrible, but you know, you all do it. <laughs> I don't need to think about it, right? I, I just drive to work and my brain starts thinking about the lesson plan for the day. Oh, how will I operate here? You know, it's, it's um. you think about a conversation you have to have, you think about your to-do list and your brain actually takes care of you. And unless there's an emergency and the, the conscious mind takes back over, You will just drive to work. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to go almost to work on a a weekend, like I was going to an event that was close by. I get on the freeway, I automatically turn on my blinker. Like (laughs) I get all the road. Wait, I have to consciously take over and say, No, I'm Saturday. I'm not going to the classroom today. And that's really what it is. It's about getting your conscious mind involved to stop the thing that you're doing, or you're going to be an autopilot your entire life.
1: Yeah. That's amazing, actually. There's um, two two things that makes me think of. There's a poem um, which is called uh, uh, An Autobiography in Five Acts. Um, it's uh, very, very short. Uh, in five short chapters, sorry, not five acts. Five act structure, that's, that's a class I run. Um, and it's um, chapter one, I walk down a street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost, I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in, it's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. Uh, And that's by um, Portia Nelson um, from Inspiration Sandwich, um, which I think is uh, quite a good illustration of how one, how hard it is actually to rewrite those habits and as you say the the injection of the the interruption of the conscious mind trying to take control but every time it well the first three times it's like slightly too late uh and yeah. then by the fourth time it starts to like kick into gear um and the other thing it makes me think of is a bit more of a mythological thing which is you know you mentioned about the neocortex develops late and that's where we get problems and of course adam and eve uh ate Mm. of the forbidden fruit of which was from the tree of knowledge and it was with the knowledge of good and evil that everything started to go horribly horribly wrong or horribly right depending on your view of whether (laughs) it was meant to be as it was but uh yes the knowledge uh of of duality essentially uh of and then suddenly um uh, they become self-aware with that knowledge. Like, I am naked. I need to wear clothing. Like, these animals are dangerous. They might attack me. God's walking through the woods. I need to hide from him. All these, like, very human concepts that previously were, like, not of consideration. So there's almost, like, a a parable there in, oh, yeah. in that story of, of how, like, the development of intellect uh, has given us all these powers as you say like these amazing tools but in doing that has also created all these um these well problems and paradigms for us um
0: yeah that is a beautiful poem by the way and I, I like that you brought in kind of almost that religious aspect again I love um walking along that line sometimes and talking <laughs> about it there was something that popped in my head and then while you were saying all of that it, it, it really is gosh like I think about that. We are, what if, so, uh, you know, evolutionarily wise, what if this is like that in-between stage? People think we're so developed. Mm. Um, I I tend to believe, this is just a belief that I have, we're becoming more aware, as you said, but at a certain point, evolution, um, you have to become a a co, maybe, you have to take over your own evolution. Maybe Mm. that's part of this parable, the knowledge of it, is super terrible. Cause what happens Adam and Eve? They're like, Oh, they're cast out. They have to toil from now on. Everything's going to be painful. Well, it is because you have to literally raise yourself up from the ground. You were this animal and you were happy and things were good, but now we're going through this evolutionary stage and you are, you have this tool, but you now have to decide. I no longer want to be an animal. I'm going to rise up. And the thing is no one is going to pick you up it is nice to have friends it's nice to have all those things i love my friends and i feel like they have risen me up but at the end of the day it is all in your mind and if you don't become that person who says damn, there's a hole on the sidewalk. Am I just going (laughs) to keep falling into this thing and complain? Or am I going to pull myself out and never hit that hole again and now go find a new street? And we're continually just rising ourselves up to become human. Maybe we aren't even really. Maybe we say we're humans and we're not. Maybe a human being is something else that we're striving for. And we really are almost these worms who are becoming self-aware and we're just now poking out of the dirt. And sometimes I feel that way. And you're like, oh, you've done so much in this and that. I'm like, I'm like a worm still, man. And and well, <laughs> who was it that said like, I I you know I know nothing, or yeah. you know the greatest thing I ever learned was that I don't know. And it's always this discussion, and and it's this growing and rising. So thank you for bringing that out in me again. But I think about that. And, I don't always mention it, but that's a thought that I have on it.
1: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I know uh, that we take it in turns to be the the controversial one, so uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate I'll, it. I'll be the one to throw in the the reading today, but you you can do the science part, and then we'll we'll swap next time. But but yeah, I think that's really interesting. And what you said about toiling and how you know everything was done for them up until the moment at which they fell. And after that point, they had to do everything themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, and, that, and as you say, they suffer pain. And you mentioned animals are in the present moment. And so, um, you know, obviously, it'd be hor- don't do this, folks. This is a horrible, horrible thing to do. But if you <laughs> kick a dog, like, the dog might... Uh, it doesn't remember that you kicked it. It might have an association. Ooh, this smell is bad. Like, this smell equals... Pain, but it doesn't um remember it and brood upon it uh mm-hmm. in the way that human, nor does the dog think I will plan my revenge on this person and I'll set up like a, a series of traps in the yeah. future that will, will catch this person off guard. Like the if the animal can't do that. <laughs> there's no
0: vengeance in their head, right? There's no there's not,
1: vengeance, yeah. and as you said, there's no time, there's no Saturday. Right. Um, yes. Uh, for the dog, there yes. is no Saturday. In Greek mythology, um, the nine muses are the daughters of Apollo and memory. Uh, and it's interesting, that, like, the significance that all creative inspiration and the, the Greeks had like nine different, they divide it into nine kind of categories of, you know, epic poetry, art, mm-hmm. music, Do the, the nine different... Calliope being the one of epic poetry, she's sadly the only one I can remember. Um, uh, but but they were the daughters of memory. So memory, mythologically speaking, facilitated creativity. Without memory, there's no creativity, because if you can't remember what went before, how can you bring it into being? And, and just to be even more pretentious, I mentioned Hideo Kojima at the start of this, and one of uh, my favourite quotes from him is... Um, keeping the past alive and building the future are one and the same thing. Mm. Bringing it, bringing it back to habits and uh, the brain and what we can do. um, You mentioned about uh, traumas and fear and how these, these really early experiences can leave these like deep seated um, marks on us. And um, I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about these kind of damaging narratives. I know one, Just give one personal example for context of people is uh, whenever I used to win something, whether it was like a P game or uh, like a board game or like a mental game playing in class at school. I was always told, don't get cocky. Nobody likes someone who's cocky. Uh, Nobody will like you if you're arrogant. And as a kid. I I didn't understand this at the time, but now I realise as a kid, I didn't understand that nuance. And I just thought everyone will hate me if I win. So I just didn't win anything. And if ever I got close to winning, I found a literal physical sensation of like my powers leaving me, like the Mm -hmm. life flowing out of my veins. I remember once I was in a sports event and I was running and I was leagues ahead of everyone. I looked back and saw that I was ahead and then the strength drained out of my legs and I fell behind wow. and I came last. And that was it was totally psychological. My dad, wow. when I spoke to him after, was like, you could have won that race like easily. And I was like, no, no, like I just got a head start and I, I rationalized it. But deep down yeah. it was that narrative that if I win, no one will like me. Um and I, it's taken like a long time to see that clearly. Um, so that's just an example of a damaging narrative. I wondered if you wanted to, uh, go um, a little deeper into this.
0: Yeah. Um, I think so. I, am talking about school and stuff like that. I'll do a, I can do a school one and then I can do a more of a traumatizing one. Cause that autopilot, that's interesting that you were able to feel that and, and know, because most people, they're not almost even going to realize it uh, in school, since I said I dealt with a lot of young people who didn't didn't like school, probably because they weren't good at it. Right. Um, me personally in school, I did really well because I had a good memory. And mm. so I could regurgitate things on a test, which I found out were fantastic. It didn't <laughs> actually mean I was smart. That is the which education system. <laughs> yeah. And then I learned like I have a really good memory. If I can write what the teacher wants me to write, I get rewarded. And so that that was hit me, but by the same token, what you said about nobody wants you to be smart really, at least not as a kid, because all the cool kids were like, oh yeah, man, I didn't do well on my tests. And I used to hang out with a lot of what I, well, I don't know, I guess my clique or group or whatever it was, was more like, um, like a rock and roll, heavy metal thing. They were supposed to care about music and hanging out. We didn't care about school, but I cared about school because there was a paradigm at home that I had to. So yeah. I almost had two conflicting paradigms going on in my head <laughs> which we'll close out with this is cognitive dissonance. But I I didn't want to say anything at school like that. I got an A on a test. I didn't celebrate any victory or want to talk to my friends about how they did or study with anyone because then I would be, you know, called a name or I wouldn't really fit in. So that's on a very low level, uh, not a low level, but um, a a smaller example, the trauma-based one, which I think I'm willing to go into maybe on our next episode, really, really more in depth because I want people to understand, I guess, when I say, hey, yeah, you can change your brain, you can rewire this. It is 100% possible because I had a really traumatic experience that I would say shaped my entire uh, life from the age of 18 uh, for quite a while. There was two huge ones. I'll give the shocking one now so that people will tune back in. PTSD is very, very real and everybody's is different. It doesn't make it any how do you want to say it? nobody's PTSD is worse than somebody else's right so if I say mine today it doesn't mean I'm like oh well you only had that bad thing happen as a kid your parents divorced the hell with you man my parents divorced too and when I was 18 years old I was abducted you don't understand fear until you have like a weapon up against your chest and you get stuffed into a car crazy story so tune in next week and, and I'll, I'll make sure I go over it a little bit more I, I was able to rewire this though, but let me tell you, it took years and years and years because in that instant, everything changed, the emotion, the fear, it wrapped all in together. And then for the next decade of my life, probably over a decade of my life, I had this paradigm where I didn't really think about it, but it was impacting everything. It impacted yeah. relationships. It impacted my work. It impacted you know, going out and, and eating in a restaurant. I felt like I didn't go out anymore. I still went out, but I was one of those people who, I didn't want my back to a door. I didn't want a lot of things. I didn't trust people automatically. I would walk to the other side of the street. Now someone else might be like, oh, why did that guy do that? Is he like, uh, is he racist? Does he think I'm going to hurt him? This or that? And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, dude, I'm literally, it's nighttime and I'm worried that you're going to do something to me. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what you look like. If you are opposing and look bigger than me and it's nighttime and I'm alone, I'm going somewhere else. And I wouldn't go to certain places just because that was um, my paradigm. And it, it really, unfortunately, even impacted the way I dealt with other people. And there was like, um, you know, you drink sometimes because you want to forget about the stuff and ease these pains, but I did rewire it and I can talk about the situation now and I'm still aware, right? I'm aware, like I've learned how to be aware of my surroundings, but not let it impact me. So when we go further on this about these situations, you know, if you had horrible sexual traumas or horrible things happen to you as a kid, don't worry, I do understand. I mean, I don't understand because I had my own But I can at least empathize that you went through something. And even if I'm like, I don't think that's as major, it is for you. Because when it happened, it rewired your circuitry. And so I guess I want people to walk away with that. that um, The two ways that you usually get your brain wired, the subconscious brain, is the repetition. The kid's always telling you something. Mom and dad always telling you something. Teacher, it gets in there. You go, okay, this is what's real. The other way is the traumatic experience. And it just solidifies it. And- I'll go off on one other little tangent. I was maybe going to save it, but I think it's a great one, evolutionary tool. Don't be down on yourself about this. Your brain is actually wired to remember these experiences for the reason we just talked about. It, It literally makes you, quote, unquote, a negative person. And that's why a negative experience will last with you for longer. So, you know, if you get a book published or you get all these things, you are on cloud nine, But it's a very short ride. I don't know if you've noticed that, right? And then all of a sudden, like, whoa, book did great, got a new review. Well, at some point, the book gets old, and this whole thing, like, goes back down. The curve goes back down. You're like, oh, I got to start doing writing again. I got to do something again. But if you have a negative experience, you drop down, and you tend to stay in that because your brain says, Oh my gosh, this horrible thing happened. Don't worry. I'm never going to let this happen to you again. I will take care of you. I'll make sure you avoid all these situations. No one will make fun of you. No one will call you an egghead. No one will say, oh, you're a cocky winner. You can't believe you won that race. No one will hurt you. I'll take care of you because I am your master. I am your subconscious mind. So it's trying to help you. The problem is it doesn't know because it doesn't understand, the, as you said, the nuance of context. It learned it. It is now programmed. It is going to do everything in its power to take care of you because it loves you. It's really you. You need to, when they talk about loving your demons, that's, I mean, maybe that's part of it too. Understand who you are, love it. And now say, now it's time to release this and let's get it out of there. But it's an evolutionary tool as we talked about. So it's not your fault, but if it's ruining your life, it's time to take control. And I feel confident that you can, it will be miserable, but you can do it.
1: You mentioned fear and i think that's truly vital because most people are living in i think covid has revealed that you know most people living in a state of total fear terror even and they don't realize it and um uh there's a guru who whose name has unfortunately escaped my mind at this moment in time but he said that uh, there's actually no biological difference between stress and fear stress is another paradigm it's something we've created oh you have stress at work but really it's a a fear response, except that the normal fear response, like you were saying, of the reptilian brain fighting or flighting, uh, we can't take those actions in the modern world. Uh, We can't run away from a test or from an interview, or one of these work-related things. We can't fight either. We can't leap across the desk and smash our boss to the ground. So um, we instead are just stuck with this buildup of adrenaline. uh, And then that adrenaline takes ages to dissipate. And as it's going through us, we are uh, damaging. We're actually damaging ourselves on a cellular level. There's actually a lot of research into it now. So yeah, there's no yeah. difference between stress and fear, and we're, a lot of people are in this fear state, and that's that's a biological component. But then you, as you say, you add these paradigms on top and these traumas, and we end up with an experiential nurture, both nature and nurture. We're getting fear from both angles. Uh, and this can um, be be incredibly damaging.
0: The fear, and I think this was in our very first episode. We said like fear is the great killer, right? And, <laughs> fear um, of
1: the mind killer.
0: Yeah, and
1: Herbert, and, Frank Herbert.
0: That was. And what you said was that we're living in it constantly, and again, we're blinded to it. I guess we've almost accepted that this is the way things are, and they don't they don't have to be. When your body goes into that, like you said, with an animal, they get that rush, they get away from the situation and then they're done. They're back in the moment. All Mm. the levels go back down. We don't have that because we're living in it and you do literally get like ill and sick and it it just years and no one will have an answer for you, right? You go to the doctor and they're trying to figure it out. Oh, I've got stomach problems. Well, try this, take this, you know, and, but they don't, maybe you eventually die of heart disease but you didn't die of heart disease. You died of this stressful thing. And cognitive dissonance, I think is where this is really happening. Cognitive dissonance is this idea of holding two contrasting beliefs at the Mm -hmm. same time and trying to make them work. So the cognitive dissonance of having these like two conflicting ideas at the same time, um, for me, it was with teaching. So where I was teaching in a public school everyone kept saying like, Oh, we're doing this for the good of the students. And that became the thing. And we would roll out these plans or do this stuff. And I was having a lot of internal conflict with it personally myself. And I actually had, I thought I had a, um, I thought I had, a, what was it, like a gallbladder attack. My stomach, I was having so much pain, all this stuff. I went into the hospital. And the doctor eventually goes, I can't find anything wrong with you. And I started realizing that it was at work. It was it was a problem I was having at work, and maybe people are going through this with their own jobs and relate this however you want. But I became fond of saying, Hey, look, I can either be a good teacher on paper or I can actually be a good teacher. And a good teacher on paper, when like things go run, like, oh, well, how many phone calls home did you make? How did you do this? Did you get all this paperwork? And I was like, Well, if you make me do all of this paperwork, there's not enough hours in the day for me to like work with my students and give them the feedback that they need. So like teaching to me had to change i'm busy trying to be a good teacher in the eyes of the administrators cuz they sign my paychecks they then give me my evaluations they held me by this this thread they were everything but by the same token i internally knew what a good teacher was because i've been doing it for a decade and you know i've got i'm very proud of this but i've got a box from you know kindergartners on to yeah high schoolers you know even 20 year olds because i used to have 20 year olds coming to my class because they had they had failed out of school until then and the little kids telling me like how much it meant and how happy they were and i started to realize like those notes and the pictures the little kids would draw for me were more important than what those administrators were telling me and i eventually had to leave teaching or leave a school or become at ease with myself that okay you know what do what's best it doesn't matter if i don't look good on paper what really matters, well, I found out what mattered to me was the actual teaching and impacting the kids. Yeah, So that's what I focused on. And if that made me not a good teacher, Uh, in the eyes of someone else, I didn't really care because those kids loved me and I loved them back. And that was really, really powerful. But if you're at a job where you you don't know how to, where you fit in and you think you're supposed to do one thing and other people want you to do another thing or your paradigm goes against it, you think you're supposed to go to college because everyone told you to. So you go to college. It's the worst experience for you because really you weren't meant for that. That's the cognitive dissonance. That's what makes people sick. And to bring it back to writing, you're like, oh, well, what the hell does all this have to do with writing? Well, guess what? If you're stressed out, that kills your creativity. Mm. I can't work when I'm stressed out, which is one of the reasons why it takes me so long to write something. I'm busy on deadlines for other people and trying to help them out. I get all bound up and then I don't flow. My circuitry doesn't flow. I can't do it. So really, you guys need to start looking at your own paradigms to discover them find out what's no longer serving you try to identify any of this cognitive dissonance where it's butting heads, you know, and then as you said next week, or, you know, when it eventually airs, we're going to help you guys erase them. Let's give you the tools, the tactics, the tricks, if you don't already know them um, and we can make it so that we can override these programs and put something new in there, brainwash you for success as it (laughs) were.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much. And we will see you on the next episode.
0: Looking forward to it. Thank you guys.